0: Good afternoon, it's Friday the 16th of September 2022, just after one o'clock, welcome to UK Call News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link, uh, I've got Vanessa Bailey today and also Patrick Henningsen. Welcome to the programme to both. We're gonna get kicked off straight away here with, well, this is from a couple of days ago. We covered it on Wednesday, but uh, I just wanted to bring a sort of mainstream headline back on screen again. Inflation drops, uh, pound sterling looks better supported against Euro and dollar. So that was on Wednesday. Unfortunately, the headline today, two days later is, sterling falls against dollar and euro as UK retail sales crumble. And uh, so uh, the pound against the dollar fell 0.6% to 114 and the pound against the euro was down 0.33% to 114. Um, And uh, the pound was its weakest level against the euro since February, 2021, says this report in UK Investor and lowest against the dollar since 1985. Uh, UK retail sales have be- seen their biggest decline so far this year, dropping 1.6% compared to 0.4% increase in July. This is markedly worse than forecast, a 0.5% fall. That indicates rising prices and the cost of living crisis is stopping customers from reaching their for their purse when it comes to extra spending, says Sophie lund uh, lead equity analyst at hargraves Lansdown. Okay, so in two days, that's what's happened. Uh, But the question is, who is at fault for it? Or is it really anything to do with retail sales? I'm sure retail sales have fallen. I'm sure the the figures are correct. But at the end of the day, it's much more likely to be uh, as a result of the activities of the Bank of England. Uh, And well, unfortunately, they were supposed to have a Monetary Policy Committee meeting yesterday, uh, but they decided not to have that uh, in light of the period of national mourning now being observed in the United Kingdom. They tweeted out the September 2022 meeting of the Monetary Policy Committee has been postponed for a period of one week. The committee's decision will be announced at 12 noon on uh, the 22nd of September. Uh, But in the meantime, they're also tweeting out things like this, that global supply constraints have been a key driver of inflation, nothing to do with money uh, printing and uh, money uh, availability expansion and, you know, hundreds of billions of pounds being spent on Uh, bailouts for uh, energy companies, nothing to do with that whatsoever. And in fact, uh, many of the major uh, financial uh, institutions now saying that uh, the Bank of England is part of the problem here because they're not raising interest rates uh, fast enough as if that was going to make any difference. Uh, So Patrick, uh, let me welcome you to the programme. Uh, because we're going to have a look at what uh, Joe Biden's been doing with inflation at the moment. But and in fact, right at the very end of the program, we're going to be talking a little bit more about energy crisis and so on. Uh, but this, this whole story about inflation being related to uh, supply chain problems uh, and complete silence on the money printing issue, uh, it's just, uh, it's, it gets more ridiculous by the day.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mainly, we're talking about quantitative easing, money printing, inflationary policies. Um, That's the main culprit here. The the supply chain disruptions, actually, uh, if you trace them back, and we reported on this exactly one year ago, uh, when the energy market started to basically explode uh, into a hyperinflationary cycle. Uh, We also earmarked the very important point that the supply chain, quote, supply chain disruptions were a direct result of government COVID policies. Uh, Not only border closures, staff were being uh, furloughed, uh, people were not coming to work uh, because of COVID testing and quarantining and things like this. Then the vaccine mandates, all of these things helped to create the force multiplier of disruptions along with the massive money printing. So it's absolutely a perfect storm. And again, all of these are government policies, not acts of God or nature.
0: Well, precisely. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, in the United States, then we have uh, the 2020 midterms ramping up very nicely. Uh, and uh, your graphic here is saying spin everything because, of course, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act is something that Biden has been pushing as being a solution to all these inflation problems.
1: Sure, sure. And so in the run up to any U.S. election, whether it's a midterm election or a presidential election, we need to adjust uh, our lenses, our focal lenses slightly and view everything through the lens of the upcoming election. So basically everything is spun um, by the incumbent. And of course, the opposition is going to be attacking them as well. Um, so in, in the case of this uh, inflation story, uh, it's, this is the big issue. The economy is the big issue um, in the U.S although everyone's trying to uh, sweep it under the rug if they're in the White House or the Democratic Party. Um, so the Inflation Reduction Act, I mean, you can't get a better Orwellian title for a bill uh, basically printing up a trillion dollars and calling it the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, so Joe Biden was giving this press conference here, they're doing a victory lap that they passed this bill. And it's funny, if we uh, you look at the red arrow there that we just uh, moved in on screen, it's pointing to the dow jones tanking while he's giving this speech on tv so the irony of this um was was just incredible so this is kind of illustrates the farce um and the theater right now with regards to the economy they just don't want to they just don't want to own it and so what do those numbers look like well the the stock market took a massive hit but the point is inflation if we look at uh uh, August numbers coming in eight point three percent. By the way, this is kind of CPI, consumer price index numbers. They're not really indicative of the real cost of living spikes. The real, the real numbers we're talking about are food, cars, housing, energy, and education. Those are um, ma- massively up, way more than eight point three percent. hugely volatile. That's the core. What they're calling the core inflation now. So there's. What's what good about this crisis, if there's anything positive, is that people are now starting to talk about inflation in more realistic terms instead of just harping on the CPI, which is completely gamed and constantly uh, changed and gerrymandered um, by by the Fed and by uh, the U.S. Uh, federal uh, agencies to make it look like it's not as bad as it actually is. Of course, no one wants to, to own it. Um, but what kind of a stock market tumble happened Well, $1.6 with a T, trillion uh, wiped off um, the stock market in six and a half hours of training. Um, This is, by anyone's account, a record-breaking era that we're in in the last couple of months with regards to the stock market. It's not looking very good. Um, If you combine inflation and the stagnation in the economy, you have that horrible term that everybody is afraid of. Uh, which is stagflation, and we're well and truly in that. And this all has all the hallmarks of a protracted um, recession. So, but the the the, the denials continue, and uh, so the White House press te- secretary. Uh, we just have a clip here of uh, how she was trying to defend uh, the administration's um, uh, economic policies and uh, taking action against this inflationary problem in the run up to the midterms. Listen to. Uh, uh, sorry, Corinne Jean-Pierre.
2: Data, the inflation data, uh, we're, we're seeing more progress bringing global inflation down in the U.S. economy, as I just stated moments ago. Overall, uh, prices have been essentially flat in our country these, these last two months. Uh, that is welcome news for American families with more work still to do.
1: Yeah, right. So all is well. There's no problems. Uh, inflation is flattened out, according to the White House press secretary. Of course, all the numbers are saying something completely different um, in reality. So this is the sort of disconnect on a day-to-day basis. that, uh, that That's the American uh, political scene right now. And, and we'll also uh, add another little highlight reel here of other uh, Democratic luminaries and uh, leading politicians and pundits Um, over the last year or so, uh, when everybody was raising the alarm about this is just not sustainable, you know, printing up trillions of dollars in COVID relief, paying people not to work, paying people to stay at home, paying businesses to keep shut down, um, and all of the other sort of pork that was handed out um, during the so-called global um, pandemic. And this is what all of the political heads were saying a year, a year and a half ago, when other people were raising the alarm saying this is a serious problem coming down the road. But go ahead and roll this one.
2: Doubt that we're going to see an inflationary cycle. Most economic al- analysts have believed that it will have a temporary or transitory impact.
0: The faster than expected increase in some of those prices is actually a good sign. The overwhelming consensus is going to pop up a little bit and then go back down. No one's
3: talking about this great, great deal.
2: This is something that will uh, settle down. Transitory. <laughs> Transitory. And the data shows that
0: most of the price increases we've seen are were expected, and, and are expected to be temporary. There's nobody suggesting there's unchecked inflation on the way. It's highly unlikely that's going to be long-term inflation that's going to get out of hand. I don't know anybody who's worried about inflation. Uh, and we got a note there, Patrick, that that was very much the uh, the message from the Bank of England over the last eighteen months as well.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think we can we can safely compare uh, a lot of the things that are happening in the U.S. economy to the U.K. economy and more broadly to to Europe as well. But um, in, in a lot of the same areas are getting hit hard. So the same sort of policies were enacted over the last three years, um, it, whether it be COVID relief, uh, QE or sanctions against Russia, or green energy policy, all these things have been uh, pretty much synonymous across the Atlantic. So we can't generalize that some of the same problems the U.S. is having the causes of this inflationary cycle are uh, also the same in the U.K. Um, But in the U.K., maybe there's some slight differences as to which areas are, are going to be hit the most. The energy sector in the U.S., in terms of the retail side, what people are paying, it's not as Big of a shock, or it's not, you know, sort of tripled and quadrupled as it has in the UK and in some uh, parts of Europe. So, there's, because the US uh, produces more of its own energy, um, the, that, there still is a, a problem there and it has spiked. There isn't massive inflation there and manipulations in the market, but it's not nearly um, what UK uh, consumers are facing um, this winter.
0: Yes. Okay. Right. Thanks for that, Patrick. Now, let's come back to the UK. And uh, uh, this morning, uh, these two uh, MPs, uh, plus a couple of others, uh, decided to push out a letter, in this case, to the Speaker of the House of Commons, but also to the the Foreign uh, Secretary, basically saying how concerned they are that China is going to be allowed to attend the Queen's funeral, uh, and really, it shouldn't be allowed uh, because of Xinjiang and the absolute disgrace that is Xinjiang. Uh, so no Chinese, please. Uh, we don't want any of them there. Um, and uh, well, in fact, uh, Xi Jinping, although he was invited, uh, I believe is not going to, to or at least had no intention of coming. Uh, but his vice president was expected to attend uh, the funeral. Well, uh, here is Ian Duncan Smith very pleased uh, this morning. Chinese delegation barred from viewing Queen Elizabeth's coffin in Parliament. Uh, Speaker Lindsay Hoyle said, it was inappropriate for Zhang to meet on the Commons estate uh, and in our place of work when his country has imposed sanctions against some of our members. Uh, but uh, the main problem was the, the Xinjiang issue. But however, uh, as Vanessa reported, and we've reported, but Vanessa reported recently, uh, the Xinjiang issue is mainly about China's response to radicalization of a certain section of its population. And so I just wanted to highlight uh, uh, Ian Duncan Smith uh, on uh, Good Morning Britain uh, a few years ago. It was at the time of the Manchester bombings, uh, talking about this issue of radicalization. Let's have a listen to this.
3: First of all, it's a terrible, terrible case that someone should go, exactly as Chuck said, and decide not just to blow themselves up, but to do it knowing they're full well, they're blowing children and parents and families generally, and are going to kill and maim people. That's the first point we need to bear in mind. This is an extremist. The second is point. this is a multiple problem. In other words, you have to deal with it in different phases. The police and the security service head off what they consider to be potential attacks. Okay. but you need also to get into these communities and strip out this really ghastly radicalization that excuses the idea that it's anywhere, written anywhere, in any kind of religious teaching, that it is the right thing to do, to go and blow people up.
0: So, Vanessa, if I could welcome you to the programme. I mean, I I view that uh, as utter hypocrisy, therefore. Because, you know, the way that China is dealing with its with the radicalization problem that it has in a particular section of its community is being spun in a particular way in Western countries. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. but I think I just heard Ian Duncan Smith expressing the same kind of desire to, to uh, carry out the same kind of uh, interventions.
3: Well, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, after terrorist attacks on mainland Britain, of course, by um terrorists and extremists that had been fostered and fermented by various British regimes. We shouldn't forget that either. Um so the hypocrisy is, is sort of multi layered. But yeah, I mean I think any country in the world would expect its government to respond if there were a threat of extremism Uh, on its own territory or in its own territory. I mean, it's ridiculous not to expect that, but somehow China is supposed to absorb the terrorist attacks both on mainland China and in Xinjiang province against um, Chinese uh, communities there. Um, I don't know whether you want to bring up the uh, Caitlin Moran story now. No, no, no,
0: we'll do do that in a second. But before we get to that, uh, let's just have a look at this Financial Times article... Uh, yeah. Because uh, the headline here is, under tremendous pressure, the battle behind the UN report on China's <coughs> Xinjiang abuses. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, yeah. in the, or last week or the week last before, week actually. Uh, that yeah. that uh, you know the, the, the UN representative had gone, had made some very mm. positive statements about uh, what China was doing in Xinjiang. And then so- several weeks later, a report comes out uh, giving absolutely the opposite story. And so the Financial Times here, uh, headline being the battle behind the UN report. That seems to very much uh, echo what we were reporting, in fact.
3: Well, yeah, and also what we were speculating. If you remember, I compared it to the um, the corrupted OPCW report over the alleged Duma chemical weapon attacks that led to French, British, and uh, American unlawful aggression against uh, Syrians, against Damascus, uh, and um, the silencing of the inspectors who form part of the investigative team, who are effectively um, dissidents um, challenging the OPCW final report. And and we said on UK column that this is a very similar situation. And when you actually read the text of um, the Financial Times article, so let's come to this excerpt but human rights expert and activist who engaged with the office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights said its working level staff had to overcome resistance to publishing the report. Now, this means um, the report that had effectively been produced not by Bachelet herself, because as you rightly said, even in the final report, it is noted that Bachelet was trying to build bridges between China and the uh, and Western communities, Western countries um <coughs> the high commissioner did not want to alienate china so baschle didn't want to alienate china that was clear from her own statements following her visit to china believing engagement was more likely to improve conditions in xinjiang absolutely correct she did her job as as chief of the human rights commission baschle a former chilean president was under pressure to block publication of the report from beijing which has denounced its conclusions as disinformation and lies fabricated by anti-China forces. And again, we've covered that extensively, the involvement of U.S. State Department and various organizations controlled by intelligence agencies and U.S. and U.K. regimes, producing um, the demonization and criminalization of uh, China in Xinjiang. The office staff were the ones trying to get the report out so the office staff were effectively going against the human rights chief, despite all the barriers. Without them, it would not have been released. So read between the lines as you wish, that you can go and read the article. Um, Bachelet was the gatekeeper, delaying it, said Rushan Abbas of the campaign for Uyghurs, another US State Department um, funded organization who gave evidence to the UN on her sister's disappearance. And then going on into the report, after the report was released, Vachelet said dialogue and engagement were about trying to build trust, even when it seems unlikely. The polit- politicization of these serious human rights issues by some states did not help, she said. I appeal to the international community not to instrumentalize real serious human rights issues for political ends. We have seen this throughout the history of the UN, the politicization and the instrumentalization instrumentalizing sorry of uh, suggested human rights issues, let's say, that are not being properly investigated but are being politicized. Um, Mark Limon, Executive Director of the Universal Rights Group think Tank, said Bashley had struggled to shift the OHCHR from the campaigning and condemning approach of her predecessor, Zayd Ra'ad uh, Al Hussein, towards one more about engagement and diplomacy. You know, we're living in a world where engagement and diplomacy is being completely eradicated.
0: Mm.
3: Baschelet was never fully in control of her office, said Limon, who was in control of the office. Again, I refer back to the OPCW. China's ambassador to the U.N said last Friday that the publication of the report meant that Beijing would no longer cooperate with the OHCHR. Well, you know well done, brilliant, they've achieved exactly what they wanted to achieve, complete isolation of China from any engagement and discussion. And again, coming back to the fact that uh, Bachelet had said that she had received a letter signed by countries including North Korea, Venezuela and Cuba, who are, of course, used to being under attack from UN agencies and US-UK regimes, asking for the non-publication of here it says much anticipated report on China's treatment of Uyghurs, but I would say on the compromised and potentially um, restructured report on the treatment of Uyghurs. Um, So yeah, I mean, just extraordinary, really.
0: Yes, okay, well, well, thanks for that. Now coming back, uh, Patrick, I'd just be interested to get your views on this. Uh, As far as the guest list for the funeral is concerned, for the Queen's funeral, uh, those not on the guest list, apparently China now, but also Russia, Belarus, Syria, Venezuela, and Afghanistan. But uh, if you're North Korea or Iran or Nicaragua, you're allowed to send ambassadors. You're not allowed to send heads of state, but you're allowed to send ambassadors. So there seems to be uh, two different degrees of uh, hatred uh, applied to certain countries. Now there's the absolute outright hatred. No, you're not coming and that's it. Uh, and uh, and North Korea is almost allowed to come. So uh, I, I'm not quite sure what to make of that.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't either, really. <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense. So kind of axis of evil being recognized there, but not quite, It's uh, there's little ambiguity there. <laughs> and uh, not all the former US presidents uh, are invited as well, including uh, the one US president who is half British, Uh, A lot of people don't realize that the 45th president of the United States' mother is Scottish, um, so he's actually half British. Um, So I don't know if he's a dual passport holder, but he's certainly within his rights uh, to be a dual passport holder. But anyway, that's Donald J. Trump. I don't think he's invited to the uh, funeral uh, as well. So I I don't know. There's no consistency on that. I don't know exactly. I don't know if they really know what they're doing. Uh, on that score either. Mike, uh, what are your thoughts?
0: Uh, well, uh, you're right. Donald Trump is not invited, but he has been invited to make up for it. He's allowed to go to a memorial service in New York. I believe it's in New York. So, so uh, you know, that, that'll, that'll make up for it. Uh, but he's not allowed into Britain again at this point, at least not for, on, a, on any kind of official business. Now, look, speaking of Russia, uh, uh, everybody in the UK will know that uh, many, many people have been displaying Ukrainian flags in the last uh, period of time, the last six months or so. Um, we've got a little bit of video here about something that happened uh, with the uh, Essex police uh, th- recently. Um, so this is uh, involving a Russian flag. Let's have a look at this. Um, obviously,
2: I know you're, there's no issues you being here with the protests and stuff. I know, yeah. I know you're here quite a lot. The issue is, is the flag, so I'll be perfectly honest. Um, which is so it's the flags again. It's yeah. the flags. You are causing a nuisance at all. No, I we're ask not. I you to leave, peacefully leave, and, and cut the, the protest short today because you've got to upset people. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, and then I'll get my done and then you can get your. Alright, you oh, we'll we'll we are we'll taking to the, the Russian flags that you are displaying, as there's currently a war going on in Ukraine with Russia.
3: That's a public order
2: offence, and we've got offences that we have to deal with. And to do that, we need details
3: and we mm-hmm. need all of
2: your details nice to then line. carry on the mm-hmm. No, we'll it's the opposite okay. way, so... So, right now I'm going to ask for all your details, you don't give them I've got powers to arrest you. And you haven't, uh, you ...we have to deal with. And to do that we need details, and we need all of your details nice to then line. carry on the mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll No, on. Do, can I just ask a question yeah. about I'm, the I'm war, not, war I'm still not finished, pain. I'm still not finished. Um, so right now you've got public order offences and we need to take your details. If mm-hmm. so you don't give us your details... No, no no crime. So it's either that. So we're going to arrest you. Or you, you can arrest us you. We all have a for the public order Your president doesn't have to say anything, but it may harm the defense if you don't mention main questions So I'm Richard Island Court. Anything you do say may begin there. That applies to all three of you, so if I can remove your phone now.
0: So that's that. Uh, Vanessa, what are your thoughts on this, first of all? Because, I mean, it seems to me that uh, that is... Uh, the police now being uh, deployed in order to censor people, uh, no freedom of speech. But, you know, we're allowed to fly Ukrainian flags. Uh, that's not a public order offence, but Russian flags, well, that certainly is.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Like You're allowed, as you said, to display a Ukrainian flag because apparently that doesn't upset people, despite, of course, there are a huge number of Russian... Um, citizens living in the UK I'm sure it does upset them especially when they're hearing about the torture of Russian POWs um, but it's also extraordinary the way that she explains why it's a, a um, public order offence because it's upsetting people this comes back to this uh, online harms bill of course doesn't it and also the fact that we talked about this morning Mike that she does appear to have Ukrainian colors on her uniform you explained to me that it's the blue of the taser and and the yellow of of the um. It's the probably, yellow of the
0: taser and the blue of their of their yeah, badges, of course. Sorry, but, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, but it, it's a strange coincidence, of course, that the the yellow is very similar to the Ukrainian flag yellow. I'm sure that's just a, a coincidence. But, but what is absolutely extraordinary here is there has never been any objection to the U.S. flag being um held in the streets of the uk though the us has effectively destroyed the majority of the planet through the wars that it's waged against sovereign nations for decades right that surely has upset quite a few people but they're not ukrainians they're not blue eyed they're not blonde they're not like us uh, and the fact that she excuses it by saying there is a war going on and then she she kind of comes up with between russia and ukraine so it's quite clear here that they are taking sides. Why are they taking sides? It's not it's not the of course it is the UK's war because effectively the UK regime is part of the starting of this war as a NATO member state. But, but that is being completely omitted from any discussion. I mean I just find it absolutely despicable that British police are behaving in this way. I know we shouldn't be surprised. But where's the bobby on the bicycle that we all grew up with, or I did anyway? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know? this is, I this mean,
3: is, it, it's horrifying.
0: Yes. These are good questions. Uh, Patrick, uh, I'm not sure whether that's the first time you've seen that, but what are your thoughts?
1: Um, so that, that, that pretty much is a, a signal, as good a signal as any, that, uh, uh, that that's absolutely base fascism. Um, the police are out there enforcing a political line on the street, basically, um so they're they're sort of equating the Russian flag with basically waving a swastika or a Nazi flag um, in public. That's the way that they're actually treating it. What other flag could you uh, be in public waving where the police would come and say that's a public order offense? I mean, there's only a couple of flags on the planet. One of them is the swastika, okay. So that that's what that signifies to me It's kind of totalitarian in a sense that these are sort of you know uh, low level police uh, community type you know not not community support police but they're you know just beat regular beat police but it it also shows that uh, it's not policy it show me where that's a, any kind of policy in metropolitan police that was a, a call made by those officers on the spot. So it, I think it reflects their personal politics, and that's the point. So if that's the case, then this is by definition totalitarianism, because totalitarianism is when you have the, uh, the enforcement comes from the bottom up after the bottom has been propagandized. But the irony, of course, of this is if you're waving a Ukrainian flag in public, that's perfectly fine, even though you have the largest uh, Nazi uh, revival, militant. Nazi revival, the direct descendants of Hitler's SS, um, not just uh, the direct descendants hereditarily, but ideologically um, as well. So that brandish swastikas have them tattooed on their body. Um, Those are thousands and thousands of militants within the Ukrainian armed forces. So, But that's okay to have a, a state that coddles a Nazi movement in modern day Europe, that's fine. You can do that on the streets of Britain, in fact, you can fly that flag above every hamlet, village, and city hall in the UK. And if you travel through the country, you'll see that flag there. Not just in the UK, it's shocking to see how many people in the United States are flying the Ukrainian flag in their front yard. In yes. some neighborhoods in the US I've seen, there's more Ukrainian flags um, on the doors and in the front yards than there are American flags. Um, and that, if that shocks anybody...
0: Yes. Well, uh, if we're not allowed to fly uh, Russian flags, we are allowed to fly Ukrainian flags. Maybe it's time to start flying some flags with a carrot uh, on them Uh, because this is the BBC's biggest story today. uh, And that is that carrot emojis hide anti-vax posts on Facebook. Uh, This is staggering. Now, where does this come from? Well, it's come from a tweet uh, and it's a tweet by a guy called Mark Owen Jones. Uh, Got invited to a Facebook Facebook group with a couple of hundred thousand members where people share stories about why they think the COVID vaccine killed people they knew, but instead of saying vaccine, they use the carrot symbol, uh, presumably to evade censorship, very odd. And well, what is very odd about this? What I feel is very odd about this is that people aren't allowed to express themselves on Facebook and that they feel the need. In fact, the only way that they can get around the Facebook censorship in the first place is to pull off gags like this. Uh, Marco and Jones went on to tweet this uh, the admin of the group wants to protect against censorship by dot 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 censoring and he's highlighting a piece of text here where it says if anyone posts anything which will attract the AI censors, we delete it no matter whether we may agree with it the simple fact is we will do what is required to allow these testimonies to be seen and again he's not quite he's not he's making fun of the fact that uh, the group admins are taking that action and not even considering the absolute uh, reprehensible behavior of Facebook in the first place that, that these kinds of measures are required. What is going on here is that people are attempting to uh, give their testimonies uh, in a, an environment of censorship, and as a result, they're having to hide their words. Patrick, uh, the point is being missed here deliberately, probably.
1: No, it is. It is. And, you know, it goes a lot deeper than this. How bad could this get? Uh, Just let's single out Facebook for one moment. Um, It was just reported this week in the United States that Facebook has been spying on DMs of users who are questioning the uh, 2020 election and forwarding uh, some of the information to the FBI investigation as potential extremists, including people, get this, Um, that are basically uh, exposing the fact that Mark Zuckerberg himself plowed upwards of $400 million um, into and swing states um, in the run-up to the 2020 election to supposedly, uh, you know, help buttress democracy um, in America, including hiring poll workers and uh, paying for drop boxes, anonymous drop boxes that were never a feature in previous elections. So if you expose that um, on Facebook, uh, Facebook will potentially forward that information to the FBI um, to basically label you as a potential quote domestic extremist. That's how deep this this game goes. Not just the uh, not just the attack on free speech, but even further than that, the demonization of dissent and the criminalization of speech.
0: Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. Okay. Uh, Let's move on. Uh, If you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, uh, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, Uh, or you could pick something up at the UK Column shop, Uh, but do please share any material you find on the various platforms. Um, So Vanessa, let's uh, move on to the Middle East. And uh, the Middle East seems to be uh, blowing up. I mean, obviously Ukraine, uh is has been going on for a little while but then we've uh, alice alex was talking about on wednesday we've got azerbaijan and armenia kicking off uh but what's happening in syria israel and these uh these parts of the world
3: um yeah i mean there's there's actually quite a lot going on and the tensions are building which i'll run through now but if you remember i also spoke about um the campaign by particularly Israeli and American or U.S. media to try and drive a wedge between um, the, uh, Russia and Syria, and particularly uh, in public opinion in Syria, to try and um, spread the rumors that Russia is withdrawing its S-300, only one S-300, um, from close to Masyaf, uh, northwest of Damascus, and taking it to Ukraine because Russia's running out of um missiles you know one of the, the most ridiculous um taglines that's being spread around by um NATO aligned media um so i just wanted first of all to to show an operation that is ongoing in the north of syria this is in northwest uh syria it's a video showing <coughs> the collaboration between Russia and Syria to really start taking out the terrorist and by terrorist of course I'm talking about Al Qaeda and various affiliates, including Chinese Uyghurs and um Chechen terrorists and Saudis and Afghanis, um a huge degree of foreign mercenaries of course are fighting um amongst the extremist elements that are controlling the northwest um particularly um Idlib and up to the turkish border so the first video just shows a recent um russian syrian campaign to take out um terrorist headquarters uh drone manufacturing sites and training grounds
0: Okay, so, uh, so what we're seeing on screen was, was drones on the ground being pulled out of vans. Uh, and, well, mm-hmm. now we're seeing the Russians destroying those. So uh, Yeah, exactly. Uh, yes. Uh, okay. Sorry, and, it's an
3: artillery and an air campaign. To basically, so, so basically, this has been ongoing for some time now. And, of course, it's not being picked up by the media that is trying to demonstrate that Russia is abandoning Syria. And of course, this is having a knock on effect on Syrian public opinion. I can't deny that um, because they are being misled, as they were in the beginning of the war, by um, Israeli, Gulf, and Western media. But this was just to demonstrate, um, even to Western audiences, that Russia is committed to the annihilation of terrorist elements in, inside Syria. And as I said, similar operations are ongoing but are more low key in the Northeast where the US is occupying um, oil resources. Um, so now what I want to come to and talk about because this week is actually a very critical time for um, the potential confrontation between uh, Hezbollah uh, and Israel over the Karish, uh gas <clears throat> drilling in what is disputed maritime uh, borders. Um, Hezbollah will say it's in uh, occupied Palestinian waters. Of course, the UN and Israel are disputing that. So the first headline, which is from yesterday, Lebanon reviews maritime border proposal as clock ticks on Israel's drilling plan. The US and France are, of course, pushing for an agreement to be reached before October in the hopes of softening a major fuel crisis battering the West. So, that gives you an introduction into what this crisis is about. Because, of course, with the loss of uh, Russian supplies, they are now focusing on um, the supply from the Palestinian waters to um, alleviate the pressure, particularly one assumes, on the EU. Um, who's involved in the drilling? Of course, the UK is. Enegyen is a London premium listed FTSE 250 and Tel Aviv listed ENP company with operations in eight countries across the Mediterranean and UK North Sea. So Britain is heavily involved in this. Going back to September the eighth, Irish gas extraction to start this month. What's actually also there's there's a US negotiator, Amos Poxstein, who's currently in Beirut trying to negotiate as I said, the, the border disputes over the gas. Um, he, however, does have close ties to Israel. He was actually fighting um, with the Israeli offense forces. I don't call them defense forces. Um, and in this article, they talk about the fact that Hezbollah has threatened escalation of Israel begins extracting gas from the disputed field with Lebanon, disputed with Lebanon. So let's see what it said in that article. The UK-based company, Energean, announced on the 8th of September that the plan to extract gas from the Kurish gas field on behalf of Israel will commence by the 20th of September. So we're four days away from deadline, and Hezbollah gave a deadline of mid-September. So we're at a very sort of crucial tipping point now. Project Shark is progressing according to the schedule to start production within a few weeks. The date indicated for the start of gas to the system is September the 20th after which we will immediately start selling commercial gas, Energy and CEO Matthew Riggs said. Um, it goes on to say that it's at the center of the dispute. Um, the, this follows reports from the same day, which were denied shortly after that Energy and had informed Israel that extraction from the Kurish gas field cannot take place in September and instead must be postponed until the end of October. There are also rumors that, that Israel itself is trying to delay it until after the elections in November, because it is worried about an escalation with Hezbollah. The Hezbollah that they face now is not the Hezbollah that they faced and were defeated by in 2006. Going back to July, the end of July 2022, Hezbollah releases video of Kairish gas rigs on the same day as the U.S. negotiator visits Lebanon. And the hezbollah chief warned that if extraction starts in September before Lebanon can acquire its rights, a confrontation is certain to happen and in this particular report, a video was shown um detailing uh the the British ships in particular being in the crosshairs of uh hezbollah's um ground to sea missiles Said nasrallah, no Israeli target at sea, and one presumes no u k target at sea um at sea land resistances or uh, precision missiles cannot reach so that was a clear threat on july the 25th but what is this coinciding with on september the 12th so four days ago defense minister benny gantz israeli defense minister benny gantz speaks at a jerusalem post conference in new york um and what does he speak about now bear in mind um The attacks on Syria have been escalating and intensifying. The usual strategy for Israel is not to actually admit that they have targeted specific areas in Syria. They will keep it very oblique. It's it's Iranian militia. They're targeting the supply of Hezbollah, et cetera. But let's see what Benny Gantz said publicly on the 12th of September. So building up to this Hezbollah confrontation. Iran is building terror industries in Syria for its own needs. Recently, it started building advanced industries in Yemen and Lebanon as well. This trend must be stopped. The remarks came amid apparent uptick in airstrikes widely attributed to Israel. In Syria, this is a Times of Israel report. Gantz pointed to the Scientific Studies and Research Center known as uh, CERS, which has a facility near the northwestern Syrian city of Masyaf, long associated with the production of precision surface-to-surface missiles, including the process of casting solid rocket motors as well as chemical weapons, although it has been proven by OPCW previously that none of these sites were producing chemical weapons since 2013. The sites that I revealed to you on the map and in particular the underground site in Masyaf where precision missiles are manufactured constitute a significant potential threat to the region and to Israel, according to Gantz. He accused Iran of transforming Syrian military sites into precision guided missile manufacturing facilities for Hezbollah and other Iranian militias in the region. He said the initiative began under Qasem Soleimani, the head of Iran Quds forces, who was assassinated by uh, the US by the Trump administration in 2020. Then let's look at one of the famous Israeli maps, the Iranian. Terror Industries, CERS, in Syria. And you will note that what has been highlighted here is the Mesiaf Research Center that was hit about three weeks ago, and the Jamraya uh, Development Center to the north of Damascus, that has also been claimed to be a chemical weapons manufacturing site, again declared um, null and void by the OPCW during um, their previous inspection. Um, <coughs> but Jamraya, <clears throat> Excuse me, had been hit previously uh, and has been targeted on a number of occasions by Israel, including on the 7th of February 2018. And it's also worth pointing out that based on a non-existent dossier, the UK, France and US targeted similar military and chemical weapons sites surrounding Damascus and Homs uh, in April 2018. What is the actual background to this? And why do I think um, that there is potential now for a fairly considerable escalation in the region? We've been seeing um, unprecedented day-to-day reconnaissance missions by the 122 uh, Narshan Squadron, basically AWACS, airborne warning and control systems that have been um, focusing very much on the same areas that Gantz mentioned in his talk in New York. There's also been unprecedented Israeli air force activity in Northern Palestine, Lebanon, and the Mediterranean. Mock raids have been carried out to trigger the air defense battalions in order to locate and destroy them. It appears certain that Israel has been preparing for an escalation for some time. Israel knows that its war between war strategy is not working. That, That was effectively based on weakening the resistance access that has failed dismally if anything it has been strengthened Um, the israeli missions have included um, uh, intelligence missions on the ground in syria in the air as i've described Um, assassinations and sabotage in iran repeated strikes on syrian air defense the assassination of high level um, syrian air force personnel and military personnel and of course the information war that we've been talking about Syria, to some degree, is perceived by Israel to be the weak link in the resistance axis, not because it's not battle-hardened or prepared for escalation with Israel, but because, of course, it has gone through 11 years of war and um, is under blockade and siege through um, the the unilateral illegal um, sanctions. (coughs) There's already a threat of confrontation with Hezbollah over Parish. What you may well see, according to researchers and analysts here. If, for example, the confrontation takes place between Hezbollah over Karish, you may well see a pivot by Syria towards the Golan territories to to confront Israel there. Equally, um, so that will open another front in the Golan territory. You may also see an escalation in the occupied territories of Palestine, particularly in the West Bank, where you have already been seeing Um, an intensification of resistance um, efforts against Israel and of course there remains Gaza that is now also um, far more well equipped to deal um, with uh, Israel than it was previously and of course Yemen, part of the resistance axis that is now making the claim that it has long-range missiles that can reach as far as Tel Aviv so Israel knows that it's facing a far stronger resistance axis than ever before And with Russia in ascendance in the region, the US, UK bogged down in Ukraine and China, Israel is also more isolated than ever before. Hamas, who played a large part in the destabilization of Syria, are now talking about reconciliation with the Syrian government. So yet another resistance entity coming back into the fold. Um, So Israel is on actually for the first time Relatively shaky ground, and I think we are going to see some degree of confrontation in the very near future.
0: Okay, thank you very much for that, Vanessa. Now let's uh, move on to Ukraine. Now a couple of days ago, Wednesday's programme, I think it was, we had this lady on screen, Catherine McBride, and of course she was talking about fracking in the UK uh, and the fact, well, she her claim that it was uh, a lot of the anti-fracking information was coming uh, into the UK was disinformation originating from Russia. Uh, well, in fact, as we, the point we made was that the source of that claim uh, was Anders Fogh Rasmussen, the former uh, NATO Secretary General. Um, well, uh, on Wednesday, then the government of Ukraine published this document, uh, the Kiev uh, Security Compact. Uh, this is an effort really to get uh, the proxy war, the, the participants in the proxy war, more directly engaged and more obviously directly engaged. So let's have a look and see what they're saying here. The Kiev Security Compact will fulfill this purpose by mobilizing the necessary political, financial, military and diplomatic resources for Ukraine's self-defense. The compact will consist of a joint strategic partnership document co-signed by guarantor states and Ukraine, as well as bilateral agreements between Ukraine and guarantor states. So who are these guarantor states? Well, the list that they've come up with is uh, the US, the UK, Canada, Poland, Italy, Germany, France, Australia, Turkey, uh, and Nordic, Baltic, Central and Eastern European countries. And the point here is who wrote this document was Anders Fogh Rasmussen, uh, alongside uh, the uh, chief of the president, the presidential office of Ukraine. Um, so uh, it goes on to say, a broader group of international partners, including Japan, South Korea, amongst others, should also support a set of non-military guarantees based on sanctions. It would include snapback sanctions, which were automatically reapplied in the case of further Russian aggression, a legal framework will be developed uh, which will allow authorities to seize the property of the aggressor, its sovereign funds and reserves, and the assets of its citizens and ent- entities. On the sanctions list, the funds raised should be directed to repair the war damage inflicted in Ukraine." Uh, so this is what Anders F. Rasmussen was saying, Ukraine's aspiration to join NATO and benefit from its mutual defence agreements arrangements is safeguarded in its constitution. This aspiration is the sovereign decision of Ukraine. Both NATO and EU membership will significantly bolster Ukraine's security in the long term. Uh, In case of aggression, the joint document should spell out extended guarantee commitments by guarantor nations uh, to use all elements of their national and collective power to take appropriate measures to enable Ukraine to stop the aggression, restore its sovereignty, ensure its security, military edge, and capability to deter its enemies, and defend itself against any threat. Ukraine needs the resources to maintain a significant defensive force capable of withstanding the Russian Federation's armed forces and paramilitaries. This requires a multi-decade effort of sustained investment in Ukraine's defense industrial base, scalable weapons transfers and intelligence support from allies, intensive training missions and joint exercises under the European Union and NATO flags. So European Defence Union absolutely at the core of this, NATO flag as well. So what was Russia's response? Well, this was Maria Zakharova. This compact, these so-called working groups would get EU countries caught in such a knot, tying their hands so that they would end up hellishly enslaved and subsequently never restore their economic growth and development, nor even their former glory for that matter as well. Uh, so economic disaster for the West if we uh, get, get involved in this. Uh, But uh, Dmitry Medvedev was uh, even stronger. Uh, The Kiev Camarilla has given birth to a project of security guarantees, which are essentially a prologue to a third world war. Uh, It is equivalent to applying Article 5 of the North Atlantic Pact to Ukraine. It directly concerns NATO's hybrid war with Russia. If these halfwits go ahead with the rampant pumping of the most dangerous types of weapons to the Kiev regime, then sooner or later, the military campaign will achieve another level. Um, and well, what other level was he talking about? Maybe we get a clue uh, from uh, Ukraine Form. Uh, this is a news publication in Ukraine. Uh, and they had a headline from a few days ago Prospects for Running a Military Campaign in 2023, Ukraine's perspe- Perspective. Uh, and this was uh, uh, written by uh, General Varely uh, Zal- uh, Zaluzhny, uh, Commander in Chief of the Armed Forces of Ukraine. He said, it's hard to imagine that even nuclear strikes will allow Russia to break Ukraine's will to resist, but the threat that will emerge for the whole of Europe cannot be ignored. The possibility of direct involvement of the world's leading powers in a limited nuclear conflict, uh, bringing closer the prospect of World War III, cannot be completely ruled out either. Any Russian attempts at practical steps in the use of tactical nuclear weapons must be preempted Uh, by employing the entire arsenal of means at the disposal of world powers. After all, starting from this moment, the Russian Federation will become not only a threat to the peaceful coexistence of Ukraine, its neighbours and a number of European countries, but also a truly global scale terrorist state. In our opinion, it's it's precisely taking into account such complex and ambiguous combination of factors that the prospects of the 2023 military campaign should be considered. Only their full and contra- comprehensive consideration will create the prerequisites for Ukraine to defeat the aggressor's army and put to an end the destructive war that is raging in Europe. Uh, so, Patrick, I was interested in getting your thoughts on this because that seems like a direct call from the government of Ukraine for the use of tactical nuclear pre- preemptive use of tactical nuclear weapons on the basis that Russia might use them at some point in the future, uh, and also the full support of. Uh, a, a NATO luminary uh, in the form of Anders uh, of of for Rasmussen, uh basically for that approach or that attitude.
1: Yeah. So what they're doing here is they're they're clearly they they're losing badly um, in this whole endeavor. You know, Plan A was that sanctions and economic warfare was going to bring Russia to its knees, and you know this is the sort of delusion plan that was hatched in the West and people very much believed that this was gonna happen. They thought they had full spectrum dominance uh, regarding the economy, embargoing Russia and forced the Putin regime out of power, et cetera. And that somehow um, NATO will work its magic um, and you know win on the battlefield uh, in Ukraine. And so they're doubling down on that. This is now plan B. Plan B is doubling down. So this is a wish list. This This will never be realized. This is designed for a new protracted, um, a new type of Cold War, and the the danger with you know uh, they've been pushing this talking point that Russia uh, could you know use chemical weapons or it could use tactical nuclear weapons if it's losing on the battlefield. So the danger is if there's any, uh, the, the the soil is 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 absolutely fertile for a false flag, in that sense. And if there's any limited nuclear explosion or detonation, it's going to be blamed by the Western media, by the NATO states through the rapid reaction mechanism or rapid response mechanism. They're all going to be on the same script. They're going to say it's Russia and Russia did it because they lost some battle in some small village somewhere um, that was hyped up like you've seen in the last week um, around Kharkiv. Like this is like the tides turning finally in this uh, uh, incredible uh, advances by Ukraine and so forth. Um, so that, that's the danger is if you keep uh, feeding these fake narratives that Russia, if they're losing, they're just going to drop a tactical nuke in there. Ridiculous. It's ridiculous on its face. But the longer you push that propaganda, the more it seeps into the consciousness of the West and all that's somehow plausible. Now that's worked its way um, into NATO policy. The the disturbing thing about this document is the political shape of this document. So NATO is basically uh, increasing its its uh, character as a political entity, and what they're effectively positing there is is that there's this need to have a nation building project. So this is like is what if you break down what was laid out there by NATO, that's basically Afghanistan. Um, it's it's re- rebuilding a military, putting in command structures, funding it, arming it, uh, infrastructure, all the rest of it, constant aid. So it's in Afghanistan, but on Europe's doorstep with this kind of new Cold War uh, paradigm um, attached to it. So that's, that's what I see. But the, the main point of this is, is it has to drag on as long as possible, because it, at the end of the day... Whether these things actually happen, a direct military confrontation, that may or may not happen. It might not be in the calculus of NATO or the West to actually make that happen. But what's definitely in the calculus of the West and NATO is to drag this on for years, as long as possible, decades long, to create this paradigm. And the subtext of that is look at what's happening in Europe. They've dropped an iron curtain economically and energy-wise between the East and the West, And so an economic iron curtain to separate Europe and the West from Eurasia, that is the end game. That's the goal. And to cut off Europe from any escape routes in terms of energy, to use the green movement, to uh, clamp down on nuclear power, um, to not allow Iran to have any direct uh, agreements or energy uh, agreements with Europe, which they tried to do. During when the JCPOA was signed, you notice the U.S. came in and bullied German uh, diplomats and politicians, saying you're not doing any deals with Iran. They're a state sponsor of terror, etc. So they've cut off all the exits for Europe except for one, which is transatlantic, and that's LNG. That's fracking. That, so that's the only. that's more expensive. Um, it's going to drive the price up. The supply isn't as uh, as secure as Russian gas. So this is basically, in my opinion a repeat of the post-World War II uh, world order uh, rebuilding of Europe, the Marshall Plan, if you will. So they've created a wartime economic shock in Europe without actually having a shooting war on European soil proper. That's what's going on. This is an extension, uh, flailing, if you will, but still an extension of the post-World War II uh, Anglo-American-led economic and political order. That's exactly what I think... You're, you're seeing here?
0: Okay. Well, of course, uh, one of the key events in the run-up to this whole situation, the run-up to the whole chilling uh, effect between uh, the West and Russia was Russia Gate, And of course, this was a British, uh, uh, maybe not instigated, but certainly supported uh, initiative. Uh, Christopher Steele, the ex-MI6, if there is such a thing as XMI6, advised by Richard Dearlove, uh, providing a lot of the information for that uh, for that RussiaGate uh, situation through the Steele dossier, but uh, what's the latest on this then?
1: Well, the uh, the, the Durham the Durham investigation is uh, making some headway, and uh, in preparation of what looks like it's going to be a trial, and so the person of interest in all this, the scapegoat, if you will, has been a man by the name of Igor. Uh, Danchenko. He was the subsource or source for Christopher Steele's infamous um, Steele dossier that had salacious stories of Trump in the Ritz-Carlton or whatever uh, in in Russia doing things and being black, blackmailed with compromise by the Russians. So the story went. Um, so now the latest, this is Technofog, which is an excellent Substack. I r- highly recommend everybody follows it if you want to know what's going on with this type of a story. Um, Danchenko turns out he's an FBI informant who knew. So this, this changes things dramatically. Um, so he was meant to take the fall. He lied to Christopher Steele, said Adam Schiff and said the Russiagate, uh, congressional committees and witch hunt committees. They said Danchenko lied to Christopher Steele. He's going, you should uh, be held accountable for that. The whole thing was fake. Um, but they're trying to pin it on Danchenko. So it turns out the FBI had him on the payroll, um, if you can believe that. What happened was Crossfire Hurricane, this was the sort of anti-Russian investigation um, designed to unseat or delegitimize and unseat the Trump presidency. It was plagued with problems in, in 2016 already. Everybody knew it. Even the FBI knew it. They had to lie uh, to get Carter the Pfizer warrant to, to surveil Carter Page, uh, for instance, including forge a document. Uh, Klein Smith, um, I believe he's out of the FBI because of that. So and and so they had the FBI cut Steele loose. Christopher Steele was a paid FBI informant as well. They cut him loose in 2016 because it seemed like the FBI knew this document was fake, but they let it gestate anyway. And Denchenko was the last piece he needed to be buried um, until the Mueller investigation was underway. So what's the best way to uh, bury a witness, um, it's to put him on the payroll, basically. And then he's a confidential human source for the FBI. um, And and I believe he was hired March of 2017 by the FBI. So in his testimonies, of course, the timelines don't match up. It's like everybody knows this is a charade, but they have to go through the official due process in order to sort of nail it officially. That seems to be what uh, John Durham is doing, but if we look at, here, here's the real kicker in all of this, and so we'll we'll advance here. So in support, this is what they're saying on Technofog, in support of the theory that Donchenko engaged in and overanted of the FBI about his work for Orbis Business Intelligence, the company who collected the information contained in the steerer also plans to introduce evidence that Donchenko on multiple occasions communicated and emailed with among others, Charles Dolan. This is a big-wig Democrat um, executive type connected with the Clintons uh, regarding his work for Christopher Steele and Orbis Business Intelligence. And further to that, evidence that proves Dolan, this high-level Democrat, was aware of Danchenko's reporting, was part of a related project against Trump, and that this work was being done on behalf of Steele and Orbis. So part of this effort to conceal Danchenko, to kind of bury him, to kind of sweep him under the rug, at least during that period, was also, I th- it looks like, not just to protect Christopher Steele, but to crit- uh, protect the organization that Christopher Steele was working for, which was a British intelligence organization, albeit private, but run by a former head of British intelligence. So the conclusion here, Mike, is that uh, the Russians didn't meddle in the 2016 election? Britain meddled in the 2016 election, The foreign power, and was that's instrumental in uh, uh, meddling in the 2016 election.
0: Yes, and that's been that's been something that we've been arguing for that that situation uh, for quite a long time now. Okay, well, th- thanks for that, Patrick. Now let's uh, move on. We started with inflation and and. Uh, uh, economic situation. Well, let's uh, move on to the energy crisis in the United States. Uh, store closed, no electricity will open as soon as possible. Is this a genuine sign?
1: This is, a, Of course, it's a genuine sign. You, you'll see this uh, in the UK as well. You'll see it in Europe. You'll see it in the United States. People are having to make some serious decisions. Uh, about whether to stay open. So you're going to see more this year, um, uh, more cafes, more stores. You started to see this um, uh, after the lockdowns were lifted, where a lot of businesses are shut on, you know, Sunday, Monday or Monday or a Sunday, Monday and Tuesday. So only open during what they consider to be peak hours. So this is a real problem and not just staff layoffs, but literally, you know, closing the business, not open. For certain times in the week. So this is going to be um, a reality. But let's let's look at uh, let's let's change the uh, pivot a little bit let's look at what china's doing first okay and then we'll go to europe so this is an article uh, which was originally on the Wall Street Journal so it's China's building plants China's building more plants than the rest of the world combined so this this is you know, if if you look at the Paris agreements, which is a non-binding agreement, however, it allows China to increase its emissions up to uh, the year 2030. Okay, so from from when Paris was signed, or not binding but signed, uh, from 2015, 2016 to 2021, during that period, China has increased its emissions by 11 percent. Now, during that same period, the United States has decreased its emissions, on paper anyway, by 6%. So you can see these two countries, these two economies are going in two different directions. China doesn't seem to be too bothered with the Paris Accords. They're just carrying on business as usual. And in the meantime, the political uh, trajectory of all this and the considerations politically are going to shift as well by 2030. But let's look at what China is proposing here in terms of politics, and I think this is important. Uh, President, uh, Xi Jinping, he, this is what he said um, recently, and this is this is official Chinese policy. We can't be detached from reality. Uh, we can't toss away what's feeding us now, while what will feed us next is still not in our pocket. Okay, so he's talking about uh, sweeping uh, green policies. For emission reductions. So Paris Accords, basically. And further to that, any concessions on climate will require US concessions on Chinese priorities, such as Taiwan, trade policy, and human rights. So China's effectively kind of holding the West hostage on this and saying, this is now up for negotiations. This is what we're putting on the table um, with regards to any compliance or cooperation uh, with this kind of global Green New Deal or net uh, net zero carbon uh, goals or UN sustainable development goals, quite frankly. That's pretty much the same thing is what we're talking about here. And then lastly, and this is important, um, our cooperation on climate change cannot be divorced from the overall situation of US and China relations. So all the warhawks that are basically uh, being tough on China. And now the Democrats are being tough on China. You saw Nancy Pelosi jetting in uh, to Taiwan, to much uh, fanfare, uh, pro- effectively provoking the Chinese, challenging the one China policy that's been the uh, the mainstay of, of U.S. Uh, policy on China and diplomacy for many, many decades. So n- now Beijing is basically saying, yes, okay, we're putting this caveat in and you want to co- we want to cooperate on climate change. Well, you're going to have to cooperate with us on foreign policy. So I don't see any daylight here uh, for for the West with China. I really don't. China's taken a sovereign position. They're putting their foot down squarely on this. There's room for maneuver. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, Mike. Before we just, uh, turn to Europe.
0: No, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I always come back to to the types of language that China was using a number of years ago uh, with respect, I mean, they effectively invited the West to get directly involved in the Belt and Road. And not only did we not do that, we basically started the the war drums beating. Um, so it's looking like uh, China is starting to draw its lines in the sand. And it, it I think it, it, I'm surprised, the only surprise here is that it's taken them this long to do it.
1: Yeah, and, and not only that, you've got long range pipeline projects Uh, with Russia. Uh, They just announced that this week. Um, And a lot of these other announcements are coming out through the Shanghai uh, Cooperation Organization. So what does that mean? There's long-range investment, long-term investment in energy infrastructure, um, connecting Eurasia up. And that's very, very important. You don't see that kind of long-range investment going with hydrocarbons in the West. You see the opposite. Certainly nothing in Europe. I mean, they're struggling to get an LNG conversion plant. Um, uh, up and running in Germany, you know. There's they're, they're having to use the one in Poland, and they ship it back to Germany um, as in, in the form of gas. So, like uh, the infrastructure in Europe is is completely woeful for hydrocarbons because everyone's been sucked into this green uh, energy uh, boondoggle. So, Eurasia's just getting on with business. So, they'll have needs met either through coal uh, domestically. Uh, they'll import coal. Russia's major. Uh, ma- potentially the world's biggest exporter of coal, um, in addition to natural gas and oil. But what is this thing that Russia lost in terms of European trade? It's going to replace with Chinese and Asian trade. So that means this whole uh, effort to cancel Russia really is going to be at the expense of of the European standard of living. That's Flatly, that's the case. So now looking at the EU, soaring energy costs leave households fearing for the winter so this is triggering emergency measures by the EU. We talked about this last week and in previous programs. So this is now being formalized, what we said before. So the EU here, this is Reuters. The EU is proposing windfall levies. Notice the term, windfall levies um, on energy firms to ease price pain. That's the plan from the European executive. How practical is this, though? It does. Do we have any precedents for this. We do have a precedent for it, but it's not what people think. So this is Ursula van der Leyen here, and basically unveiling the EU executive, notice the uh, the term EU executive, unelected uh, executive, plans to skim off, um, those are my words, by the way, this isn't a direct quote, I'm paraphrasing, um, but plans to skim off more than 140 billion euros from energy firms to, quote, shield consumers from soaring energy prices by confiscating revenues from so-called low-cost energy generators. They're, they're claiming that uh, uh, renewables, renewables are low-cost uh, electricity generators. They're not actually low-cost electricity generators. But nonetheless, uh, in making fossil fuel firms share a win in profit. So this all sounds good on paper, but fossil fuels don't uh, consider their their profit hydrocarbons they don't consider their profit to be straight up on a balance sheet. They have to be prospecting uh, drilling, uh, doing geological surveys, building refinery capacities forward. There's a lot of forward investment in hydrocarbons. So they calculate their profits. They might have a they might be making hay right now, but they're also planning for lean times if, uh, if, if potentially the price drops. Or they're they're not able to uh, to get to market with what obviously there's more competition with renewables somewhat there as well. So further to that, and in, in this is the important time, profits must be shared. This is this is direct quote: profits must be shared and channeled to those who need it most. Says Ursula Van der Leyen. Do you understand the the weight of that statement? These hard times must be shared. So the EU executive is dictating that private firms or corporations must share their profits because there's a crisis on, because there's a emergency situation. This could be any emergency, any crisis. This is a very incredible precedent that's being set. And the precedent that I referred to earlier is, I, it, it seems to me like you're seeing a type of the beginning of the kind of Sovietization of the EU or at least the, the executive is looking at their role in terms of a command and control uh, uh, economic system run by Brussels where all the corporations must share in their profits. I mean, th- th- this can only go in two directions. One is is everything will have to be nationalized and will that be nationalized um, uh, by respective countries or will it be uh, nationalized on a EU level now well here, whether she can pull this off, whether they can pull this off, uh, remains to be seen. Uh, And then on from there, we'll say the European Commission published its proposal on Wednesday, the uh, 27-member European Union grapples with an energy crisis fueled by Russia's invasion with Ukraine. And I'm going to say this is pure mainstream media gaslighting by uh, by Reuters here. And so it's not because of Russia's invasion. That's not why this has happened. And so here's the real reasons, and we'll just reiterate this because I think this is the most important thing for everybody in the UK, for everybody in Europe, and for everybody in North America, in the G7 countries to fully grapple and understand here. The real reasons for an EU, Weimar-style energy inflation are as follows. First is green energy Quote green energy. It's not green, but nonetheless, green energy and net zero carbon policies. That's one of the first drivers. There, second, and second, maybe the main one in the short term: sanctions, um, embargo uh, on Russian gas and oil, uh, COVID, quantitative easing, money printing, COVID supply chain disruptions, and then finally, wholesale energy market, uh, the scam of the wholesale energy market, and rampant sp- the speculation that's driving up the price. In other words, the creation of a middleman market that wasn't there 30 years ago is here now. So nobody wants to address the core causes of this crisis. Instead, they want to drain the Treasury, print up more money, and increase the hyperinflationary cycles. They're exacerbating the problem and scapegoating Russia to get the public to believe that it's Russia's fault somehow, and then use that uh, animus towards Russia to... Uh, Get the public to approve uh, funneling more money into military endeavors and aid for Ukraine, et cetera. This whole thing is a recipe for a massive disaster, for a collapse, not just economically, but it could potentially politically destabilize uh, Europe, the UK, and further afield um, if this continues. Because there there are no solutions being uh, raised here or presented by any of these politicians at all. They're just dealing with the symptoms. It reminds us a lot of the COVID crisis. We we have a huge breakdown and a problem with the way government is talking and acting and uh, and, and doing the business of government.
0: Yeah, okay, brilliant. Thanks for that, Patrick. Well, Fred, we're well over time now, so we'll have to end it there. Uh, we have a little bit of video to show uh, during Extra, which uh, will put a little humor onto this, hopefully. Uh, you but,
1: should show it right now you
0: should yeah, we, show it we, right we now we can't
2: we got we got to move on I'm with it so so 20, thirty uh, seconds well okay well okay then let's uh, let's just play that out then this is <laughs> <laughs> Саш, вы думаете обо всех, и Европе, и обо всей планете. Ну а как? Мы же центр Европы. Хвастаемся ну, этим. Будем работать. Опа. Хорошие дровишки. Ёлка, она такая тягучая. Тягучая. Ну, слушай, Европе не выбирать сейчас. Ёлка, берёзка. Ну, главное, чтобы тепло было. Да. Жар, надо, даёт. Жар по, даёт. Надо подумать, Семёныш, да. как там, чтобы получили, И главное, чтобы в Yeah,
0: well, so I, I don't think uh, Duda and no. are gonna freeze, but uh, but anyway, there we go. Uh,
1: President Lukashenko, uh, President Belarus. Uh, off his uh, wood chopping skills.
0: Yes, indeed. Okay, thanks for that. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Vanessa. We'll be back in a couple of minutes uh, with some extra. Uh, But otherwise, have a great weekend, and we'll see everybody 1 p.m. on Monday. See you then. Bye-bye.